good morning, everybody. Uh, if you have your Bibles, just uh, go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 8 with me, uh, continuing in our series, Stepping into God's Promises. Uh, we've been going through the first half of the book of Joshua, looking specifically at God's promises for his people universal, uh, and we've seen a lot of things happening. We've, we've seen a Mountains being moved, miracles being done, sin in the camp. We've seen uh, uh, rivers being parted and walls being uh, dropped. And right now, we're kind of, in Joshua chapter 8, we're turning a corner from where we were last week. If you weren't here last week, I'll just catch you up in a second. Uh, But Joshua and company were on a euphoric trajectory into the promises of God. He was doing all that he was saying he was doing. He was giving them all of the land that he said that they would have. Incredible, miraculous things were happening before their midst. It's kind of like the Christian life that we all want, uh, want for ourselves, right? God moving mountains in front of us. And Joshua and Israel are on this, this, high, this kind of euphoric high because God is just pushing them into the, he's basically pushing them into the promised land, and they hit this, this little hiccup in their journey where someone by the name of Achan uh, takes some of the devoted things, uh, that, that group of stuff uh, that God told them specifically not to touch for his own purposes. He, he takes it, he sins against God, transgresses the covenant, and the blessing seems to disappear. And so they go into a battle, one which should have been easy to beat, should have been easy to win, and they, get, they just get whipped, they get beaten, they get embarrassed, uh, they're put to flight, and that's kind of where we left off. We left off with them dealing with that sin uh, and kind of the curse in that battle being lifted. And so now Joshua is getting ready to Uh, fight the same battle again. This time, they're completely devoted to God. They've gotten rid of the sin in their lives. They're concerned with holiness. They're consecrated, set apart to God. All of those words that we use to describe a heart that has been set on fire and completely devoted to God, that's kind of where we're picking it up in Joshua chapter uh, 8. This is a long chapter. I'm not going to read every single word, but I'm going to pick out verses and paragraphs that kind of give us uh, the key uh, points of the story, uh, the key points of this, this narrative, and we'll explain what it means, not just for them, but what it means for us today. But before we do, uh, let me just start by praying. Lord, we, uh, we just want to bless your holy name even as we open up your word. Before opening up the scriptures, we, we are blessed Regardless of where we find ourselves in, Lord, you have, you have shown your, your mercy and your goodness in a variety of different ways. Even just coming into this building, seeing the, the, the clouds in the sky and just the, the whispers of rain, we're reminded that you send rain upon the, the good and the evil alike. You're a benevolent, kind, and good God. And we also just remember, as the prophet Uh, The prophet Isaiah said that just as the rain falls to the earth and brings forth produce, so your word goes forth from your mouth and it always accomplishes the purposes that you set for it to do. And so we, we open up the Bible, we open up your word 
believing that it is more than any other book that we have read. Any other lecture, it's more than self-help, it's more than advice, it is the God-breathed power of the Almighty God. And your words mean something to your people. And we just want to say that before you, that your words mean something to us. Your words are unlike anybody else's words. And we pray that we would be changed by them. And we just, even before reading them, we just want to say thank you. In a culture, in a society, and in an age where there is so much confusion, we thank you for the clarity of the kingdom of God. God, you would speak to people in a way that they could understand what your heart is, what your will is, and what your kingdom looks like. And we want to read it with that in mind. We would read your word with that hope underlying what we read, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So change us through the reading and the study and the application of your word. And teach us more about who you are and who we are in light of who you are. That we might be changed to reflect your glory in this beautiful city that you've called us to live in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just start by reading the first two verses. Remember, they're set up uh, right next to the city of Ai. They just lost huge battle to Ai. They're a little shaken up by that but they've, they've done what they're supposed to do. They've gotten rid of the sin in the camp, and so the theory is everything's going to wind up just right, but a little shaken, right? And so here we see that the, this, this part of the story starts off with the word from the Lord. And it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to I." See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So I'm just going to stop there. Joshua chapter 8 answers a couple questions that maybe in your Christian life or maybe just in your life in general you have been asking in one way or another. I'll put it this way. You might be either the type of person that says, I need uh, God in my life. I need intervention. I need power. I am completely powerless to do anything. I need help. And so you might be on one end of the spectrum where you're like, God, just do it all for me, right? Right? I'm weak and I'm tired, just, just fix my life, step in, do what you need to do, and I'll just, I'm fine with it. Or you might be on the other end of the spectrum where you're, you're a little more self-reliant, a little more self-assured, maybe you like to, you're the type of person that pulls yourself up by the bootstraps, and you would say, God, you're great and all, but I just want to do this myself, Okay? So there's one end of the spectrum of the Christian life where you uh, depend on God to do everything. There's another end of the spectrum where you depend mainly on yourself. And Joshua chapter 8, I think, gives us a proper balance between the two, a relationship between the two, that it is impossible, truly, for us to live a kingdom-minded life apart from God, and yet... 
we're still called to step into what God is doing in acts of obedience. The first thing that we see in the first two verses is, and you can, you can call this the first point, but God must carry you through the battle. If there's anything that Joshua has figured out at this point in his life, having just been destroyed by, and look at, the, look at the places that Joshua and Israel have been. They've done some incredible things, right? Or God has done some incredible things through them. The river has parted. The Jordan River has parted. Walls have come down just by trumpet playing and stuff. Like in, just insane things. It might be easy at that point in their life to be tempted to think that we are pretty awesome at life. Like when we do things, like our church, our, our, our people, my life, my family, my community, we make walls tumble down, man. We move mountains, we part rivers, we're pretty bad. And God, you're doing some great stuff too. We might be tempted, perhaps they might be tempted, I think they were, that's what we saw in chapter 7, to think that they're pretty awesome at this thing called life, and what they're being confronted with now is that God has to carry us every step of the way through every battle, through every obstacle that we face, and we see this right in verses one through two. We see it later in verses 18 through 23. We'll get to that. But after they, and this is, this is what we see, this is how we see God carrying his people through the battle. After they removed sin uh, out of the camp, meaning They took God seriously at everything that he said, all his prohibitions, all his commands. They took his holiness seriously. They set themselves apart to be used by him. After they did that in the past chapter, they began to experience two things. And what we see right in chapter 8 are these two things. One, they experienced divine guidance. God started speaking to his people. It says right, right at the beginning, and the Lord said... What did he say? He said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. I imagine after Joshua has been roughed up by some of the obstacles in his life, that's the the exact thing that he needed to hear, and he needed to hear it from God's own mouth. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. And this is something that all Christ followers should expect in the normal Christian life. Divine guidance. We should expect that the normal course of, of the Christian life is to be divinely guided by the voice of God. Now, as believers, we would say that this is the, the authority, the, the, uh, uh, the authoritative way that God guides his people. This is his voice. But we'd also say that in line with Scripture, in everyday circumstances, God is also speaking to us on an individual basis Not contrary to the word of God, but in line with the word of God in specific situations. Sometimes we call this prophetic word. Sometimes we call it being led by the spirit. We have all sorts of Christian sayings for what that is. But God intimately guides and directs his people. In the big picture, but also in the nitty gritty in life. The Lord said to Joshua, I love that. We don't just see divine guidance here, but we also see divine power. That what Joshua and Israel were unable to do at the Battle of Ai, and what you and I are unable to do in the obstacles and in the confrontations and in the battles that come our way, what we were unable to do, God is able to do. And in this situation, he steps in. We see it at the end of verse 1. See? I love that from God. See? 
I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. Before the battle even starts, God guarantees the results. He guarantees his promises. None of his promises, uh, as the end of Joshua will tell us, fall to the ground empty. He keeps them all. All of the promises that God makes in Scripture, Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul, are yes in Christ Jesus. They're guaranteed. See, I have given into your hand the king of I. This is going to come from my divine power and not yours. This is another thing that Christians should experience and expect in the normal Christian life. This is not an anomaly for special prophets like Elijah or crazy apostles like Paul. All Christians who are filled with the Spirit and know Christ can expect divine guidance and divine power. This is the kingdom breaking forth in individual men and women and children of all ages here and now. We we can expect this by faith and long and anticipate that. But what this these couple verses show us right now is that sometimes there are obstacles in life that are impossible to overcome without the power of God. And I wonder if far too many of us, I know I'm guilty of this more often than I would like, of living lives that just do not require the power of God. And we can live a, we can live a Christian life that is just safe and comfortable enough that we will never need to act or depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not what you were made for. You were made to live a life that requires divine guidance and divine power. And God says, I give it to you. Now, when Israel was, was freshly devoted, when we are devoted to the kingdom of God, What this seems to suggest is that we can expect God's voice and his power in our lives. But, right, God has to carry us through the battle. But, the need for God's power and activity does not mean or imply that we are inactive. God's initiation, his activity, his great power on display for the church of Jesus Christ does not mean that we are apathetic or inactive. It actually motivates our activity. What we see in the next few verses is that you also have a part to play. God has to carry us through the battle to victory, but we also have a part to play. I'm just going to read verse 3 through 9. It says that Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night and he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready and I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just like before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set it on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. 
And so Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai and the west of Ai, but Joshua spent the night among the people. This is a lot of uh, warfare and battle strategy and detail. This is the only thing I want you to see. That even, uh, that even though Joshua has been confronted at this point with the need for God to display his power, he has not stepped back and said, uh, in other words, you know, I'm just going to let go and let God. He actually works harder than he did before. God's promise and his guarantee and his power and his guidance actually motivate Joshua to do harder work than ever before. Look at all of this strategy. In verse three, Joshua and all the fighting men, 30,000. You remember last week, back when Joshua was a little self-confident and God was not present with them because uh, Israel was in sin? Joshua said, you know what? Just send 3,000 people to do this. It's gonna be no problem. Now he knows that God is with them, and yet he says, I'm sending everybody that I have. God is guaranteeing this battle. He's guaranteeing his promises, but I am trusting in that guarantee by putting my entire life and my entire community into this. In verse four, we see him uh, lying in ambush. He's setting up the strategy to lure the enemy out. He's, uh, he's keeping his men up all throughout the night. There's a sense of diligence and strategizing and deep thinking. And even though Joshua is leaning fully on God, he's still working harder than he's ever worked before. He's putting his money where his mouth is, as we might say. And if we would say Joshua has a part to play, we would say that it ultimately comes down to this. Joshua believes what God says, and he's now obeying what God tells him to do. Joshua is obeying God's every word. Look at verse, skip over to verse 18. It says in verse 18, then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand towards I, for I will give it into your hand. You might be in this similar situation thinking, that doesn't make sense. What's Joshua do? And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand towards the city. Joshua now is obeying every single word that God tells him. I think this is rather powerful for us in our day and age, where we live in a time and in a culture and society that is constantly downplaying and seeking to undermine the relevance and the truth and the accuracy of God's word. It's questioning it, it's casting doubt upon it. Perhaps you are experiencing all of those things as well. Perhaps you come across a, a passage or a verse and you're like, I don't understand why God would say that. I don't understand why God would require that of me. I don't understand why God won't let me do that. I don't understand why God is calling me to do this. It makes no sense because we are reading it, perhaps through our experience, perhaps through our family of origin, perhaps through our cultural trends and societal norms. But Joshua right now, right here, is say, maybe he's even saying that. That doesn't make sense. I feel like I should shout orders to my troops, but okay, I'll raise up this javelin like a statue. Whatever is going through his mind, he's saying this is all the more time 
to take God's word seriously, even when I don't understand it. You can almost imagine someone at this point giving Joshua some bad counsel. Hey, Josh, just, you know, you heard the voice of God. You've heard his promises. You know what he's going to do. Right now, just let him handle this. I mean, you really messed it up the last time that you tried this. Just kind of sit back and let God handle it. God is on the throne. Just let go and let God trust him. Have faith. Don't mess it up. And I can almost imagine Joshua saying, I am letting God handle this. And he is on the throne. And I do trust him to complete what he promised. And the way that I trust God sometimes means stepping into obedience with God and not sitting back in apathy. In fact, faith by its very nature does not mean sitting back in apathy. Faith by its very nature means that we must respond in obedience. Faith starts in the heart, but it ends up in the body. Jesus' uh, half-brother, one of the apostles, James, would say it this way. He would say in James chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith actually save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without actually giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is saying, faith doesn't exist if it's not matched by an obedient posture to the Lord. They go together. So we don't have a passive part to play in this thing called the Christian life, in this thing called the kingdom of God. We are, we are not meant to be spectators. Joshua actually works harder than ever before. And faith and obedience are not these mutually exclusive things. They're actually mutually inseparable. Faith and obedience go together. And by the way, if you go on to read verses 18 through 29, Israel wins the battle. They lure out the uh, the enemy from the city of Ai. They come out. Uh, one of Israel's groups of, of warriors uh, take over the city. Another group is luring them out. They burn the city. Uh, the enemy freaks out. They have nowhere to go, and they're surrounded on all sides, and they're, they're torn apart. But the, the main principle underneath this winning of the battle, I love because I, I need to hear this more than, more than anything, that they just committed in the last chapter, this incredible sin against God. And yet God is still showing himself powerful on their behalf. Has anyone woken up this morning feeling a little less than perfect? Has anyone made it through this weekend just completely holy and perfect? Am I missing something? Perhaps you've fallen short. And maybe you've even done some things this week that nobody else in the building knows. You would never tell anybody for fear of, of shame. I imagine Joshua probably felt a similar way after the sin of Achan. And yet what we see here is that in Israel wins the battle. God is present with them. This shows us that our past sins do not nullify the grace of God in our lives. God isn't keeping score on you. He does want to change us into his image. He does want to 
remove the power of sin in our lives and make us more like Christ, but he's not keeping score. Like, oh, Brian over there, I noticed that you sinned 10 times this week, and that's, you know, a little up from your usual seven times during the week. You have a ratio, you know, a margin of error, then I'm not just kind of, I'm going to write that down. You're on the naughty list, you know? He's not Santa Claus. God is not Santa Claus. Can somebody say praise God for that? So we'd all be, get, be getting coal for Christmas, right? God is a covenant God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he does not overlook our sin, but he does do something about it. And he does it out of love. And what we see here is a God of love and mercy saying, even though you have failed Israel over and over, and I've never failed you, I'm not going to start now. And that's a word for you as well. Even though you failed this morning or yesterday or this week, maybe you look at your life and you're like, my whole life is a failure. God will not fail you. His love for you is not contingent upon your past record. What God looks for is repentance and faith and trust and devotion. He's not looking for an impressive resume. He's looking for a broken heart. In fact, I think it was the psalmist who would say, you know, it's not really these, these burnt offerings and altar sacrifices that I'm looking for. That's how Israel worshipped in the Old Testament. We might say, if we could rephrase that, God is, is saying, I'm not really looking for songs or the raising of hands or even the taking of communion or all of those outward forms that are important. I'm looking for a broken heart that those things point to. Do you have that? I love what God is, is, is implying in so many of these passages. Like, I'm not impressed by your resume. Do you just have brokenness? Do you have some imperfection that you want to give to me right now? Like, who here can say, hey, call me. I've got all of that. God makes beautiful things out of the dust. He brings beauty out of brokenness. What we see in this little vignette is a group of people who are desperate for the Lord's intervention and devoted to obey him, and they're charging hard. And we see that dynamic in this little battle. It is impossible to win without God, and yet we are also called to participate in what God is doing. Lastly, we might ask this question, well, how do you cultivate this type of life? And this is where the story ends, with Israel returning, regularly returning to commune with God. Let's read together uh, verse 30 through 35. After the battle is ensued, after everything is over, it says that at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, upon which no man is wielded an iron tool. And then they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Worship, right? Verse 32. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on the opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse 
according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Kind of a lot going on. I'm just going to pick out a few things, explain them very briefly. But what, uh, to summarize this chapter, what Joshua is doing is, is renewing their covenant with God. God's people are not in a contract with God. We're in a covenant. We're in a mutual understanding and a mutual relationship, a binding relationship with God that is, is unique among any other relationship that you've been in. And he's, he, he's right now, in spite of their mistakes, in spite of their sin, even in spite of their, their current victory, having nothing to do with that, he's just calling them back to himself reminding them of all of those things. And what uh, this kind of, this might sound strange, all of these details to you. They stood in the middle of Mount Ebal and on the edge of uh, Mount Gerizim and they read the whole, you know, law of Moses and they offered burnt offerings. It's very particular and very precise. You have to understand that Moses told them to do this all the way back in Deuteronomy 27 verse 4. Moses said in Deuteronomy, and when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster, and then he goes on to say, write, write my, uh, the law on them. So this is already written in the story. God is, is right now, he's, what he's doing is he's calling them, just as he's calling us, to periodically make space so that we can cultivate our relationship with him. He's doing with this, uh, this with Israel on the heels of a great battle, great victory, great turmoil and sin. He's calling them to make space to cultivate a relationship with him. He's, in a sense, he's renewing the covenant that they have with God. A covenant might not be something that we, we understand with our modern sensibilities. It's not something that we use like, in the workplace, or even in friendly banter. We might not describe our friendships as covenant friendships or our relationship to our employer as a covenant relationship, thank God. <laughs> Probably the closest thing that, that we might have to compare to a covenant is a marriage. But what a covenant is in the Old Testament is a, actually a really simple, very beautiful thing. It's a stunning blend of love and expectation. The two of them go together. These are two things that we usually think are polar opposites, right? When we think of love, we think of just like, give me, give me, give me. But with expectations, we are, we are then inviting that person to make expectations of us. So there's this mutual giving. There's this blend of love, but also of mutual expectation. Now, if you only have one of those, you don't have a covenant relationship. Let's say you only have a mutual expect, uh, excuse me, let's say you only have love, you have no expectation. Well, if you only have expectations of one another, you have a relationship that's as turbulent as your feelings. Excuse me, if you have no expectations. If it's just based on love, sentimental love, your relationship is as turbulent as your feelings. But without love, if all you have are demands and parameters and expectations but no love, you might have an impersonal relationship that's lacking passion. The two of them go together. Where we say to someone, I love you so much, 
that I'm, I'm going to give you everything that I've got. But we're also saying to them, I trust you enough that you can make demands of me as well. Covenant. A blend of love and expectation. And this originates with God where he calls us into these regular rhythms and boundaries that form us to receive from him. And what, what's happening with Joshua is, is God is reminding him, hey, there is a tremendous need for you to regularly return to those rhythms of my relationship with you. Now, for Israel, it meant specifically offering sacrifices and reading the law. Now, similarly, if we today want to be able to approach some of those obstacles in our life, or even some of the victories in our life, filled with the power of God, being directed by the voice of God, we also need to constantly be sustained in our life by God's power. Fully obedient and engaged. In order to do that, we too need to drink deeply of God's love by constantly returning to those rhythms and practices that posture us to receive from him and form us to be like him. It's the routines, the holy practices, the holy habits that perhaps you wake up on a random Monday and think are boring and and ordinary. Those are the things that actually form us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see some of those examples here in Joshua in verse 30 and 31 when they're offering uh, uh, burnt offerings. They're essentially worshiping God. That's what we do too. And we do it most notably on Sunday morning when we all come together in this room and we begin to sing and we begin to pray and we begin to call out the beauty of God and we begin to praise his name. It's through the listening of his word. It's through our, our, our entire posture. We are worshiping God. We're giving him the recognition that is due his name. That is something that actually forms us to be the people of God. Now, the hope is that we're not just doing that on Sunday, but our lives are marked by worship, right? What else is Israel doing? Where they're, they're also hearing and remembering the law of God in verse 32 and 35. Joshua is actually reading the law. That would be like me just getting up here and being like, okay, everybody, I'm going to read the whole Bible. They're worshiping God, but they're also hearing the word of God. They're not just hearing it just to, just to in, ingest information, but it's forming them. They're remembering what God has done. He parted the Red Sea. He delivered them from slavery to Egypt. He did all of these things. They're remembering the story. I love this because a, a New Testament parallel is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, when the author there says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. This is actually important. This is one way that we do it, right? Not the only way. We do it in homes. We do it at restaurants, maybe. We do it in the park, whatever. But this is, these, are, these are getting together around Christ. Author of Hebrews says, don't stop doing this, as is the habit of some. But continue to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What he's talking about is coming together for regular spiritual practices that shape us at a deep level. 
And it forms the way that we think. It forms the way that we act when the Spirit is involved. But, you know, the, those normal practices, reading the Bible and prayer, and coming together in fellowship and breaking bread and remembering what God has done, and whatever that looks for you, uh, like for you. Maybe it's journaling, whatever, you know, all of those, those things. Spending time in solitude and silence, the ways that we interact with God. God is saying those are so important to the life of the people of God. Not only because it keeps you uh, anchored in who I am, keeps you dependent on who I am, engages you in what I am doing, but it's, it's actually forming and shaping you. Paul gave a, a passage just like this in Philippians chapter 4. You can actually just turn, turn there. Many of you know this one. This is a, a, a popular verse in the Bible where, where Paul actually says that the, the way that you think shapes who you are to a very real sense. That's why we have holy practices. The way that we think, the things that are in our heart, the things that we do often, that ends up making us who we're becoming. Paul says this is important. We need to then uh, instill holy practices that shape us to be who God uh, is designing us to be. This one has to do with the way that we think. Look at this in verse 8 and 9. actually in the wrong book. One second. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. I love this passage. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Right? Saying the things that you regularly think about are going to shape you. And it could be the, the difference between conflict or the peace that surpasses understanding. Now you might look at this and you're like, okay, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely. You might read this as like fill in the blanks, whatever is lovely to you. So you're like, I'm going to think about unicorns and uh, you know, pumpkin lattes. And that's all you think about all day. Now that might make you feel better. That's great. Thinking about good things will, will do that. But I think Paul is getting to something even deeper. Because he says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. This is actually a formula he uses all the time when he's speaking about the gospel story. Speaking about the kingdom of God. Speaking about those, that big picture of what God is doing. He's saying that those things are true and honorable and just. When you begin to marinate in the things of God like that, then the God of peace will be with you. In other words, what Paul is saying here, what I think God is teaching Joshua there, is that we need a different script. Paul here is saying, hey, regardless of what you're going through in life, Philippians is all about suffering and finding joy in suffering. He's saying regardless of where you are in life, you need a different script to direct you. Joshua is saying to the people of Israel, hey, We've been through it all just in the past week. We've lost, we've won. We need a different script to hold us anchored in the things of God. I think of a different script. Uh, I think of a, I actually think of late night television. There was a time, actually for decades, 
that late night television was marked by a lot of cynicism. Have you noticed that? Whether it was uh, Jay Leno or Dave Letterman, Conan, all of those guys, there was just this prevailing underlying current. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Maybe you don't watch late night television. If not, good for you. Or there was just this, this sense of skepticism and cynicism that just pervaded late night television. And even if you laughed at the jokes, you, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I'd laugh like with a sense of like, <laughs> like almost a mild depression. Now, what they were doing is, is mocking people, tearing them down, and on a deeper level, exposing the despair of our culture and society. And it was heavy for a long time. And that was what late night television was marked by. That was the script of the day. And about a year ago, Jimmy Fallon took over The Tonight Show. And something really interesting happened with that. I'll never forget. When he took over, I remember the, f- the first night that he-, he took over the show, he just began to exude thankfulness and gratitude, which I think is timely for us in the week leading up to Thanksgiving. And I remember the first night, he was just like a giddy little kid. Like, he was just like, I just can't believe that I'm here. And like, this has been my dream since I was a kid. Like, I, he's like almost on the verge of tears. And it was awkward, you know? Like, you're not supposed to do that. Be mean. You know, tear somebody down. And he's just almost weeping. And instead of the usual script of cynicism and skepticism and complaints, instead, we begin logging on, listening to a young man just have fun with life. And from that point on, the show is marked with gratitude and a sense of silliness. We watched Morgan Freeman do chipmunk impressions after breathing in helium. Or David Blaine swallowing a frog. Or, you know, Metallica playing Enter Sandman with only plastic toy instruments. And Jimmy Fallon in the background just laughing his head off. There was no longer any need to mock or tear down or complain, just having fun. And he carried it over into his culture. I think this is incredible because what happened a year ago was Jimmy Fallon was given a script. This is how you do it. Complain, be cynical, and tear people down. And he, in a sense, said, I wrote a different script. In the same way, you have to understand, we are being given a script by the world around us all the time. And God is saying through his word, I've wrote my own script for you. Even in the book of Joshua, what he would say to the people of Israel and to us is, here's my script, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all according to what is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I've written a different script for you. What's the script that you're living by today? The Bible is not just a list of arbitrary commands or prohibitions, although it has some of those commands and prohibitions. It's primarily a story of redemption in which God breaks into our life and into human history and recalibrates it to himself. And it's better than many of the scripts some of us have been dealt with and still hang on to today. Maybe you uh, grew up with an absentee father. And even though that was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, you're still living by that script. Your dad wasn't there, and so you live 
constantly feeling undervalued and trying to gain value through your attachment to other people, hoping that they will give you the love that your dad never did. Maybe your dad wasn't absentee. Maybe he was too present for your comfort. Maybe he was constantly checking your work. Maybe he was never pleased with you ever. Maybe you never experienced his appreciation. And you're constantly trying to do better and to do more. And now you're 40, 50, 30, and you're in a job, and your dad is long gone, and yet you're, you're a workaholic. You're still living by that old script. If you have an absentee father or mother, and you've grown up feeling undervalued, and you're living by that script, what, is the, what does God's script tell you? In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Your new script is that you have a, you have a, you have a good father. Perhaps you grew up with poverty as a kid, and that's caused you to work so hard to have a certain amount of wealth in your adult life, but it's also driving you. Your new script from your father is, look at the birds of the air. They don't have to sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them all the time. Are you not of more value than they? In Santa Barbara, we have scripts. There's plenty. Here's one. Comfort is more important than depth. It might be that you want you want really authentic, special relationships with people. But once you get into the messy terrain of those relationships and they start calling things out in you or rubbing you the wrong way, you're out. So all your relationships are on a surface level because you don't want to go deep. Why? It's uncomfortable. Or maybe just on a practical level, it's expensive to live here. And because you have this idea of what it should look like to live, I need a certain house and a certain lifestyle and certain pleasures and certain conveniences and certain comforts. I need to work 90 hours a week. And comfort is driving you. And for that reason, you have no time to spend with the Lord. You have no time to spend in community. You have no time to go deep. Comfort replaces depth. And yet the new script says, Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he would grant to us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And he speaks of depth and breadth and length and height and knowing the love of Christ on a deeper level. This last week, has brought out a lot of scripts, hasn't it? Here's one script that I've seen more than any others that came out of the election. Your enemy is a political constituency. Your enemy is the person who voted against you. After last week, there were millions of people who were celebrating because they felt that their voice was finally heard 
and their concerns were being taken notice of. There are also millions of other people, minorities and the marginalized, the historically disenfranchised, who felt and still feel afraid. And the cultural script of our day is, you are both enemies. Perhaps you have felt some of that hatred or animosity or division very clearly. Perhaps out of your own hurt or self-justification, you've even lashed out in pain at others who are lashing out at you in pain. And it just continues, right? We've been given a different script. Do you know that the Apostle Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven? That even though we belong to a country, in a real sense, we belong more to a nation that is invisible? That even though we are Americans, either by birth or by adoption, our ultimate belonging and therefore allegiance is to a nation that transcends the United States of America? We belong to the kingdom of God? That means that my political values are not as important as my allegiance to God's kingdom. I'm hoping that they align, but make no mistake. That also means that God's people who belong to God's kingdom are also my people. In a deeper sense than any other earthly type of citizenship will allot you. The deepest bond that you will ever know is not national, it is heavenly. There are a lot of emotions going on even right now, celebration and mourning. The question we should be asking is how do I treat my brother and sister who is seemingly on the other side? Because you are more important than my political opinions. And even though we should have those convictions and they are important, they shouldn't get in the way of this. For those who are mourning, I want to be mourning with too. And I want to understand why you hurt the way that you do. And for those who are celebrating, I want to know why you're celebrating and what brought you to that moment and why you felt unheard before that. We have a different script because following Jesus actually changes everything. I don't know if you've noticed. Joshua takes the people of Israel onto this razor's edge between Ebal and Gerizim. Now, if you were to see this area in that time, they looked like polar opposites. Over on one side, Ebal was a barren wasteland. And Gerizim was actually lush and full of life. It was, it, was, it was as though Israel was facing the future. They renewed their covenant and they were renewing their covenant between two very stark backdrops. One barren, symbolizing a life without God, and the other fruitful, symbolizing a life with God. This was almost like a real-time living analogy of what God was trying to impress on their hearts during this covenant worship. He was saying, what are you going to choose? 
you choose my way and you're going to choose life. You choose to go apart from me, you're going to choose death. In fact, I love what he says all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and I've set before you death. Blessings and curses. Now choose life. I have given you everything that you need to know in order to progress in the life that I promised you. All the promises are yours in Christ Jesus. What are you going to choose? Now, I don't understand that verse in, you know, 2 Peter chapter, paka, paka, paka. What are you going to choose? I can't make it any more plain, thus says the Lord. Do you choose life or do you choose death? Do you trust me with such things? And he goes on to say, so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Choose life, brothers and sisters. In the midst of all of your doubts, in the midst of confusion and turmoil, God's presentation to you this morning through his word is choose life. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here as we begin to sing, transition into a time of worship through song. And I just want to invite you to begin asking yourselves a question. Ask this question of yourself. Because there are probably areas in your life where you, you could say, I am choosing life. I'm doing what God says. I don't care about that, those, those places. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to prod. You know, in the Psalms when David says, examine my heart and, and test and see and examine if there's any, any wayward way within me, God. Even things that I might not even know myself. I want you to ask the Lord today, where are the areas that I am choosing barrenness? Where am I choosing death? And once he exposes those areas in your life, believe that he has better things in line for you. And step out in obedience. Heavenly Father, do your will in our lives today. Not for our sake, because we are so thrilling or faithful. Not because we have done such great things. Not because we have brought so much worth to your kingdom. Do this not on our account, Lord, but for the sake of your holy name. So that we would look at a, a church like this and our brother and sister churches, the community, Santa Barbara community and Calvary Chapel and Isla Vista Church and the many spread throughout this beautiful city that are right now gathered around you, hooligans, rascals, and sinners gathered together in buildings. Do this work in us, Lord, so that the world could see imperfect people being used by a good God. So that we could see for ourselves that it's not by might and not by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord of hosts. May you start with us. May we come before you broken and open to anything that you could show us. 
May your kindness lead us now to repentance. And may you make us more like your, your precious son. Through these regular practices of worship and communion, bodily expression and prayer. Be present with us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.